Hello, and welcome to part 28 of our Understanding Class series. Today is Monday the 22nd of May, 2023, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. We continue our discussion of Chapter 8, The Death of Class Debate. This week, I have the new patrons, Kate Butler, Yordi, and Robin to thank. If you'd like to help support the show, please head on over to the Patreon where you'll get access to all those Patreon-only episodes and the Discord server. If you'd like to find out more about the Socialist Planning book that Donald and myself are busy writing, head on over to theclasslesssocietyinmotion.com where you can find links on how to support the project. The links to the slides for this episode are, as always, in the show notes. Okay, to the discussion. Yes, so we're back. We're back with the second part of Chapter 8, the death of class debate. And what a debate it is. Last time we got through all of the first half, which introducing the general propositions from the debate and some core propositions around defining the nature of class. Today, we're going to jump into the evidence and see what evidence there is for this mysterious disappearance of class. Kyle, do you want to take this first slide and see how we get on? All right. Uh, So our first slide says, uh, the evidence have class boundaries disappeared. Wright has researched the permeability of class boundaries. Permeability refers to the extent to which the lives of individuals move across different kinds of social boundaries. Permeability can be for any kind of social boundary, race, gender, class, occupation, nationality, etc. In Wright's research, he has focused on three particular kinds of events. So these are intergenerational class mobility, cross-class friendship formation, and cross-class household composition. The class structure concept Wright uses in his research sees class relations in capitalist societies as organized along three underlying dimensions, each with their own divisions. So the first dimension is property. So this would include employers, the petty bourgeois, who he defines as people who are self-employed without employees. And finally, employees. So these are people that are divided into different categories by the property dimension. Then we have the authority dimension. This is managers, supervisors, and non-managerial employees. And then we have expertise or skills. So that would be professionals, skilled employees, or non-skilled. Permeability is then defined as a boundary crossing event that links the poles of these trichotomies. Friendships between employers and employees, for example, would count as an instance of permeability across the property boundary. But a friendship between a worker and a petty bourgeois or between a petty bourgeois and an employer would not. Okay. Is that right? Is that correct? Let me check. So what does it say? Friendships between employer and employees, for example, would count as instance of permeability across the property boundary, but a friendship between a worker and a petty bourgeois or between a petty bourgeois and employee. Right. So it, it's only if it's if it goes from the to the right to the left. But to the So middle, the, the, the extremes. Yeah. The yeah. extremes. The uh, middle does not count. 
defines permeability in the point above is then defined as a boundary crossing event that links the poles of these trichotomies. Yes, it has to be the poles. It, pole to pole. It cannot be the the middle term. Right. Okay. So the empirical problem is then to explore the relative odds of permeability events across these three class boundaries, as well as the odds of events between different specific locations within the class structure. Okay, Kyle, you have uh, something to say about the definition of petty bourgeois here, I think. Yeah, this is understandable in the name of sort of conceptual parsimony, <laughs> like just creating a workable framework as a sociologist that you can slot people into. But this idea that the petty bourgeois are people who are self-employed without employees is just absolutely bizarre. It is, it is, it is like, it's so far from any definition of petty bourgeois that you would expect to sort of coming out of the organic, like Marxist tradition where like, you know, oftentimes we think of the PB as like, you know, shopkeepers or dentists or something like this. All people who definitely have employees, not people who are self-employed without employees. They're not even exploiting anyone in capitalist terms. So it is it is it is very very strange as a definition but if you are putting the property dimension in terms of employers versus employees and then you want a middle term then this makes sense as a middle term but it does not make sense as a definition of the petty bourgeoisie yeah i i tend to say petty proprietarian because without exploitation you might not want to say bourgeois even when there's bourgeois property involved or something yes well because let's say it makes a kind of sense to say that self-employed workers have some degree of ownership of the means of production right because that that allows them to produce something on their own without the help of others but it's a very specious definition of petty bourgeoisie and the problem here is not so much that Wright is constructing this tripartite categorical distinction between the employers the self-employed without employees and the employees it's that people then go on to use this definition in other contexts based on Wright's sociological research which is a thing that I've actually seen in sort of in the wild talking to people like, well, I define petty bourgeoisie as self-employed without employees because that's how Wright defines it. Well, um, I, I think it flows pretty logically from an emphasis on exploitation as a locus of class or as being the primary locus of property relations and class because you have exploiters, you have the exploited, you have the excluded middle. And so, you know, one might object to the name, but that is the basic, that's the basic typology. And that maybe it doesn't properly correspond to petty bourgeois in the historical sense. Well, yeah, but the problem is then that, the problem is that, that people 
can use this, you know, they 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 can uh, sort of equivocate about the petty bourgeoisie based on right sociological research, which is not about the petty bourgeoisie. Which is in line with the political usage of analytical mm. Marxism and social democratic, like, you know, small is beautiful, like small business mm. stuff. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and like and like people who are absolutely not bourgeois being called that when it's like you can be so you can be so poor and fit into this category. Like this is this is this is absolutely not a good metric of like I am higher on the property uh, ladder than the employees. Like in terms of productive property. Like, I'm not sure about that. Like, it doesn't mean higher on the class ladder. Because, because, no, but, but because like, just, there just are... Because someone has a different set of property interests and you have to, like, you have to look for that even in, like, unionizing efforts among, like, low, low-wage low truckers or something. All right? Yes, yes. All no, right? th- that's, super that's fair. Thing, you know something but, about a trucker strike that's different than a strike of yeah, who but, are structurally proletarian who don't have any small propertarian interests. The the thing is though that like I agree with you on that in that in that sense, but I also think that there are so many economic niches where people technically fit into this definition, but they're actually poor as shit. Like yes, I yes, think, yes, 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 of course. The trucker, and like so the calling truckers, them bourgeois is like fucked up. The yeah. truckers are a weird one because they actually generally own their truck, or maybe they might be in debt for it, but they could have a an asset that could literally be worth a business asset that could be worth a couple of hundred grand even, right? Where most self-employed mm. people work out of their homes or they have a van and some small tools and shit like that, that they're not actual, like, they, do, they don't have a, a lump of capital invested. Right. Yep. So that's that's my whole beef with this thing. It's about the political uses of it. It's not about the sort of, you know, categorical distinction that he's in, engaging in there. Because if you take out the term petty bourgeois, then I think it makes sense. Why would he have done it this way, Kyle? Is it because you can't, <sighs> cause you can't get enough bourgeois people to fucking sample? No, I, no, I think it's because the term petty bourgeois is inherently imprecise and it doesn't fit nicely into an analytical framework it's a bit fuzzy right inherently what it is i kind of wish he would pick a side as whether he uses marxist terms or sociological Mm. terms because i think in this particular instance i would have preferred a a less marxist more sociological definition Mm -hmm. modern concept theory and sociology doesn't use bourgeois and proletariat Unless they're talking specifically about Marx's philosophy, Marx's thoughts as a man, not even yeah. Marx's conflict theory. So I kind of would prefer if you just left that out, unless he was using a more Marxist definition of petite bourgeois, which even the Marxist definition is still fuzzy, but like there might be a time of yeah. to use that in this text. I, I have seen this in other places. It's not just uh, Wright that does this, though. So. No, no, but Wright or any other sociologist, like, I would just prefer it if they stuck with the... If you're doing sociology, just do sociology. I like that. From Marxists. I have seen Marxists do this from, from a similar mode of reasoning. And it, leads, and it can lead them to be very heartless against low-income petty proprietors. And yeah. not sensitive to their interests and not sensitive to the possibility of coalition between people with a small small amount of property, but very low income. 
and yeah. uh, the proletariat. And it can cause this, I don't know, this fever about, oh, cross-class alliances between people with completely irreconcilable interests because people are too fixated on property, not interested in income and the sort of real weirdness of, of how classes lived and experienced and acted upon. So I don't know, I, I get, I suppose I get the concern, but also like this structural, the structural like difference between the proletariat and even the most low income uh, petty proprietors who have a small amount of like capital has marked differences in organization patterns in workers movements yes. and yes. stuff in a way that Marxists have consistently causally identified. And it's, it's also driven a lot of total political heartlessness and ruthless expropriation of people that we would consider poor. So well, like, it's sort of yeah. Marxist tradition. And, and it's kind of, it's, it's kind of like, well, okay. So like is somebody who is a, you know, independent quote unquote bike career delivering food, petty bourgeois, because they have some shitty bike that they ride around <laughs> on and you know, they are, according for like for tax purposes, self-employed without employees. It it gets pretty ridiculous in in, it, in some cases, you know. Kyle. In terms of bourgeois property relations, I, I'm I'm yeah. coming for that bike. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it, it make it makes a lot more sense because I, I actually think because you know I've I've worked for like rideshare companies or something and like. Yeah, you own yeah. your car, but like it's supposed, it's not supposed, it's because it like, because you're using your own like personal property as capital kind of like eats into yeah. your personal life. And so there's this whole other dimension to that specific yeah. genre of example that I think is like a, a limit case that doesn't, that speaks to the genuine, like, you know, weirdness of trying to draw a boundary in real life. But I don't know if you're looking for the yeah. moment between life and death, you can get really fine and not find it too. Like, uh, no, sure. Yeah. And I, and I mean, I think the, 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 the other thing is just like when you, whatever you think of petty bourgeois, like you would think of somebody who has at least one employee, you know? Yeah. It's just somebody with such no a massive gap between the general usage of the concept and, and the definition here that it just kind of blew my mind. Well, this whole categorization, I think, works well except for Pene Bourgeois because, okay, employers, yeah. uh, sociologically, you're casting a bigger net than just the bourgeoisie, the way right. Marxists typically use it. Yep, sure. Um, yeah. Employers would would include what we typically think of as Petit Bourgeois, Petit bourgeois. in this, in yeah, this yeah, case. Yeah, yeah. yeah like someone... Yeah, who, yeah. Some, some no, absolutely. Person, someone who, I mean, it could be as simple as someone who owns a taco truck. And like has yeah. one person has, has one person like their yeah. brother works under them. Yeah, like, like that's it. Like you know, by this typology, they've crossed into the big bourgeoisie or the employer thing. But I think that's yeah. actually why he doesn't use like for the most part, he doesn't say proletarian bourgeois. He's much more precise on the other ones. Employers, employees. Doesn't if you just took out the petty bourgeois thing and stuck with self-employed without employees, it's a it's a mouthful, but it is like a way better definition. And also, like, in, in real life, like, I'm trying to think of people who would fit this and, like, what, artisans? Like, who does, who... Wait, like, my, par my partner was one of these people <laughs> on, until recently. I'm like, one of them now. I'm one of them. 
Well, I'm gonna expropriate you, Tom. I mean, I'm coming for that bike. Expropriate <laughs> what? Like my my audio expropriate mic. Expropriate your, your broken your electric piano. piano. Yeah, yeah, I'm coming for that <laughs> piano. <laughs> you can, you, 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 you you might uh you might engage in some uh non-sanctioned uh extra state piano playing uh for for mm. personal profit uh that would be uh un- disallowed it would cost you more to like bring it as cargo to america than <laughs> that's, that's literally true yeah, it's worth the state inefficiency for me. I'm, I'm getting it. I want to get my left thumb recliner because I, I have a left arm armchair. I don't know if people out there know this, but I have an armchair from which I criticize social movements. And so I want to bring it with me overseas. And you're right. You're right, Tom. It's uh, it's real expensive. Yeah, I'm thinking of like, just if I can get it ready for next year's Christmas carol that I, I record for the patrons. Uh, yes, very good. You okay, see, you're well, already you're already scheming to make profit, Tom. Oh yeah, with your, elect- with your electric piano. Yeah, that's oh, right. No. With, with your productive capital. Yes. No, man. Like it's, but it, like I, I know so few people that work with their own tools with zero eye towards employing somebody. Right. If they, zero if, eye towards employing. If they're somebody. doing, if they're not employing someone else now, they want to. They're sort of like maybe dreaming of. Yeah. And I'm not saying dreams count as capital, but you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I haven't gone that far into the post-structuralist rabbit hole. I mean, I, I think that, you know, there's something to that, but also, like, I do know a fair number of people in that position who just don't want employees because they don't want the headache. You know, they're, they're, they're sort of, like, inherently, you know, adverse to becoming an employer. Yeah. Is, is that a personal disposition? Yeah, it's a it's a it's yeah. a personal okay. thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and but but by virtue of their class interests, it would totally rule for them to like. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Some to become. Yeah. To totally. become an employer. Yeah. 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 To to do some grind work for them so they can do something. Yeah. yeah. Like, per- personal also, like you know, again, they're the transition. They're that transi- transition position because it would also totally rule for them to have a unionized job where they don't get the shit exploited oh, out of oh, them. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's, that's, no, that's totally right. And it, there's a, there's like a, because they're, they're low income and, you know, very likely to continue to be like getting the shit end of the, uh, forgive the expression, the rent market, you know, there's distributions like across these kind of weird, mm. weird kind of uh, postmodern markets. And so some kind of, some kind of proletarian, you know, co- class coalition would suit their interests, you know, arguably more than a bourgeois one. Because yeah, because even if they had an employee, they would still have a small capital and they would still get screwed. So, yeah. But I, th- I think like Wright provides a good framework in the other chapters for sort of understanding why by profession, like people's kind of smaller interests, like... I, I still think there's some class trend in that kind of stuff because people, you know, people that got nothing do tend to be like, do tend to have a little more solidarity than people who have a little chunk of something that helps them pay the bills. Like I, I, there's something. If, if, if they're not in a position of complete desperation where like yeah, they, right. yeah, I mean, um, even then, man, like I've, I've worked with small I, I, businesses like, that were failing and like people, the owners get so I've seen a lot of small business people get real kind of reactionary. 
blanket. Yeah, like but the, but they're they're but they're they're employers. You know, it's it's yeah. a different thing. Right. It, it's like you know, I don't want to get into it too much, but it's no, like no, no. Yeah, yeah, you know, no. like it's, like, it's like the the, the, the position point. that my partner was in doing this kind of work was so bad that uh, we both have sort of like health problems that we're having to pay for now because we couldn't afford private medical insurance and like you know it. It took a massive toll and it was like very like it was under minimum wage work, you know, like it is it is it is not it was not good. It was not it was not the kind of thing where it was like, oh, my God, I must hold on to my property. <laughs> like, you know, there there are like there yeah. are like sort of both sides to this because you can imagine also like the sort of like high powered contractor who is like making bank and you know, would absolutely not block with the proletariat, right? Yeah, but they're necessarily a, a social exception. So, yeah. so, so yeah. I, no, I, I see your point, and I, I kind of barely consider if people have like like a hammer and some screwdrivers or something. I, I hardly call that capital. I don't know, like capital usually like usually refers to some kind something culture. It's culturally significant in some way. Like it could be landed property, which is culturally significant for reasons beyond capitalist horizons. Like it's just, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, don't, I don't need to go into that. I think uh, like, and then, then there's like industrial, like a factory or some shit, like, and yeah. there's some stuff that's obviously capital and there's some stuff mm. like, I don't know. I think an a very Arizona example is like, um, you know, a pool cleaner. Usually have, yeah. somebody will own right. like a van or like a truck and a bunch of tools, but like, it's kind of like a very easy and common business to do in Arizona because a lot of people have pools. The startup costs are less than you, if you already have a van, you're halfway there. You just got to get like the fucking tools to clean the pool properly. Yeah. You could use your personal property to, to, to do the job. Right. At first I was like, Oh man, he's going to go in on this definition right now. And we're just trying to defend the basic concept of class shit. But when I think about it, so many uh, markets right now operate, with this structure and there's sort of an effort to deproletarianize uh yeah. workers uh to be low income structurally petty proprietarian it's sort yeah. of part of the neoliberal quote unquote kind of restructuring that when you can do that do it so that like, yes you know you internalize the ideology as a matter of structure you internalize the ideology but there's also less legal protections for an independent yeah, yeah, contractor yeah, yeah. Right. Totally. And it's also yeah. like the, the internet's able to drive this by huge monopolies, yep. Uber, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, and then isolate yeah. your workers, you know. Well, so well, there Uber, is definitely there's Uber's definitely most something workforce I've right. like, ever seen in my life. Like any like or, the people that mm. like did union campaigns with Uber, like those people were associating drivers at all in a way that mm. that was totally alien to even like a well, super alienating job like Walmart. Like in Walmart, you fucking walk in there with some people and you're there. Yeah. Right. You see right. the people and you know that they work there. You don't even know the other drivers. I don't know. I've made this point several times, it's <laughs> but it's, it's, it's still, it's it always blows difference. my mind compared to Marx's read of the proletariat. And, you know, it's not like I don't consider an Uber driver a worker because they fucking own their car or something. It's just like, I can see where some people, they organize the LLC and they feel like a small business person and you can't well, talk about it. You know, it's, the internet's that great it's that great device for creating like instead of the proletariat sacks of potatoes 
you know, it's like the peasants keep them isolated and unable to talk to each other in the work workplace. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Structure the market so they don't have as much of an interest in it. Well, right. even peasants yeah. have villages and communal ties that they can like, they can talk to their fucking village mates. You know, like I love hearing uh, I love hearing Americans talking about peasant life. You know, <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm not like rosy-eyed about peasant life, you know. But like that—that that was the basis of like Russian peasant communism. Yeah, and well, there's also a bunch of just like weird—I don't know—semi-feudal. Not—it's not feudal. Feudal's the wrong word, but it's like this weird, like agrarian kind of persistence in American culture that influences the development of suburbia, and like it's all come back with such a vengeance. Like this, uh, this boundary here the difference mm. between worker and someone with some small property interest that might have an eye towards employment but might not and their fortunes are pretty much tied to how good is is you know the economy doing overall or some you know smaller market fluctuation that benefits them specifically and that determines so much about the you know stuff that's going to be important towards the end of the book the po their political interest in forming a coalition and yeah no this is going to be a big devil in the detail when thinking about what Wright is really saying at the end of the book because it's yeah. going to look like Wright is saying yeah we should buddy up with the petty bourgeoisie but for the most part he's not really talking about any sort of employer whatsoever yeah he's not yeah. talking about people that we would actually think of as the petty bourgeoisie which is very so, weird why he would yeah. call them that. Anyway, let's go on. We've spent yep. half an let's, hour. Let's move on. We, the, the, the objection is noted and we, we move on. Yeah. Yeah. So let's defend the concept of class. Correct. Who wants to, Ezri, do you want to take the second slide then? Let's do it. The evidence. Have class boundaries disappeared? The basic findings of the research were as follows. The property boundary is generally the least permeable of the three boundaries for all three kinds of events, mobility, friendships, and household composition. This is followed by the skill and expertise boundary, and then the authority boundary. The rank ordering, or relative permeability, holds for the four countries studied, US, Canada, Sweden, Norway. The odds of mobility between a working class location, that is a non-managerial, non-skilled employee, and an employer location is about 25% of it of what it would be if the link between these two locations was random. The odds of a close personal friendship between these locations is about 20% of what it would be if these events were random. And the odds of a two earner household containing an employer married to a worker are about 10% of the random association. The odds of events linking workers and the petty bourgeoisie, on the other hand, are generally only modestly different from random for all three kinds of events. The class boundary between workers and petty bourgeois is therefore three to six times more permeable than the boundaries between workers and employers. None of these results demonstrates that class boundaries are the least permeable of all social boundaries in capitalist societies. In the US, racial boundaries are undoubtedly less permeable to household composition than our class boundaries. And in some countries, religious affiliation may be a much less permeable boundary than class for certain kinds of events. But these results unequivocally indicate that class boundaries have not disappeared. The coefficients for events across the property and skill expertise boundaries 
are significantly negative in all countries at P less than 0.001 level of statistical significance in nearly all cases. Like that P0.001 is, that's a very strict measure. Of yes, that is very strict. Like normally mm. you're doing something is like 0.25 mm -hmm. or 0.05. Yeah, 0.025 or 0.05, but 0.001 is like one in a thousand. Yes. So it's incredibly significant. And you can tell it's incredibly significant because those things like things are 20%, only 25% uh, mobility between employee and managerial, close personal friendship is only 20%. Odds of an employer mannering oh, yeah. a worker is 10% of random. So they're incredibly, incredibly. Mm strong statistical correlations, shall we put it? Yeah, and this is just, I don't know, appeal to lived experience. There's, there's, there's lived experience, and then there's just the data as well. Like, they both, yeah. they both uh, argue that fact. Because the thing about lived experience is that for many people, because these relationships hold, like they don't really have very much to do right. with the other poll outside of the workplace. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. it's not necessarily front of mind. So showing the data is, I think, like uh, a good sort of like encouragement to check your lived experience and actually think about it and be like, oh, yeah, this is true. <laughs> yeah, can I picture myself? Uh, dating or living, marrying like any of these small business people who do employ others ever that I've worked for? And the answer is no. Ew. Yeah, fuck no. Get away fuck from no. me. Fuck no. Do not touch yeah. me. Stop. <laughs> stop. Stop touching me. The odds of a close personal friendship <laughs> between Sophie and <laughs> And Elon Musk. Yeah, yeah. yeah pretty. BFF, me and Musk, pretty small. Yeah. I'm, I'm also glad for the attention that Wright pays to, as is the sort of implicit class relations of families and people in families. Yeah. Like, people that don't work in relation to others. Because, like, you can't understand the left without understanding people who, you know, don't work and are related to someone who has some money, <laughs> let alone the economy. But, you know, I'm just saying, like, vital for navigating political movements. Yes, totally. Absolutely. Okay, Sophia, do you want to hit the next slide? Sure. The evidence has meaningful inequality disappeared. Have inequalities in the distribution of capital declined to the point in recent years that it no longer matters much for people's lives? Pakulski and Waters are correct that compared to 100 years ago, perhaps, there is a more egalitarian distribution of wealth in most capitalist countries. This does not, however, imply that the distribution has equalized to the point that the basic nexus between class and capital asset holding has been broken. In 1983, the richest 1% of US households owned 50 to 60 times their per capita share of capitalist assets like bonds, stocks, and business assets. This was before the massive increase in wealth concentration that occurred in the last decades of the 20th century and continues to this day. By 2012, 
the top 0.1% of households in the U.S. had as much wealth as the bottom 90. In 1990, the average family income of the top 1% of income earners in the U.S. was just under 549000 On average, over 50% of the total came directly from capital assets, not including an additional 61000 from self-employment earnings. In contrast, the average family income of the bottom 90% was approximately 29,000 with less than 10% coming from capital assets. The inegalitarian distribution of capital assets is clearly consequential. The distribution of ownership rights in capitalist production affects the stability and distribution of jobs. One would be hard pressed to convince a group of newly unemployed workers from a factory that has closed because the owner moved production abroad that their lack of ownership of capitalist asset had no significant consequences for their lives. If the workers themselves owned the firm as a cooperative, or if it were owned by the local community, different choices would have been made. So, I mean, reading this, like, this is where lived experience kind of plays a card, plays a role again, where I'm just like, how could Polish man and Roger Waters argue <laughs> That this shit doesn't matter. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Roger Waters never say that. But even, even like, even not lived experience, I immediately think of the L curve. It's just something I learned when I was an undergraduate. It's something that a perfectly liberal person can look at and be like, yeah, that's fucked. So, uh, on the other hand, like, I get why one would make this case if you're kind of more inclined to, you know, be a right winger, I suppose. Like, yeah, compared to like, hundred years ago, when a lot of the capitalist uh, countries were still semi-feudal, things are a lot more egalitarian. It's, like, undeniable. But, like... Uh, I don't know. Don't that's know. not true. No. No, it, right. they're, they're, they're more unequal than they ever have been at any point in history. Because the top is so high up, it's like some people can't afford food and some people are in space. There's a quality of difference as well. Most of the gains that were made, most of that has seemed to be given back in inequality rankings, that the inequality rankings are nearly back to 1929 levels, I think. It's probably fair. I know there's a lot of argumentation around it, but it it does seem generally that's reasonably true. So we're back to where we were. were, I think we're quite quite past that point um, after the uh, pandemic, Tom. It's truly worse than it ever has been. As far as I, I understand, uh, like just just uh, reading reports about it over the last uh, couple of years. Um, so in, two, in 2023, this all just seems like a whole alien discussion. But this is someone writing yeah. in like 2012 about a paper from 1996. And so it's yeah. basically interesting from a sociological history point of view. Like, huh, remember when sociologists thought class was gone? Like when at the same time Clinton was getting welfare, you know, like... But, like, yeah, thing I, is, I, you can't take this argument as in a scholar... Like, this, this is obviously nah, no, scholarly. There, it's obviously just a bullshit. You know what I mean? Well, I, I'm, I'm, there's a lot of politically motivated scholarship. There's yeah. A lot of yeah, bad, yeah. like, hacky, politically motivated, lauded because it's con- because it has ideological valence. Right. Like, there's right. less... That's it. That, that's less it. stuff like that. And that, that, that's like a part of academic culture. It's part of pop intellectual culture even more so. It continues to be a part of pop intellectual culture. 
it's pretty strange that this, this was acceptable. It wasn't as bad in the 90s, but, like, you brought up Clinton gutting welfare. Like, it's, it started with the Democrats in the late 70s in the United States with cutting, like, you know, labor protections and stuff like that. And it's continued for at least, like, over 10 years. So mm. even by the time they're writing this, like, it's so nakedly, like, not true. But it's, it's laughably ridiculous now. I would just say it was laughable at the time. It, it was laughable, laughable at the time, but the, the thing was the thing was that it wasn't so much that there was sort of a, an overwhelming amount of scholarship that was saying that class didn't exist at the time. It was more that everybody just sort of tacitly had agreed not to talk about class. And I think the people who were outright denying that it existed were in the minority because it was like, oh, we don't, we don't study that anymore. You know, that was very much the, the mentality at the time was like, yeah, like, oh, class is over. It like, you know, it's, it's just not, we don't even talk about it anymore. Yeah. Because all the funding for it dried up. Yeah. But also it like it, it played this these type of arguments played massive ideological roles in that like the third way of Tony Blair and Clinton and all that. You know, this Yeah, yeah, their, no, for sure, for sure, for sure, for sure. Yeah, it's just I I I'm just saying like, you know, sort of that question of like how could you have sort of absurd arguments like this largely unchallenged or unexamined? It's cuz like there was sort of a massive hole in people's perception of reality at that point in time that was politically constructed. Right. Okay. Let me take this next slide. Has meaningful inequality disappeared? An objection could be made to Wright's analysis that he has grossly exaggerated the levels of inequality in distribution of assets, since pension funds of various sorts are among the biggest holders of stock and other financial assets. Shouldn't those workers covered by pension funds be considered quasi-capitalists by their virtue of connection to these assets? Doesn't this effectively erode the class distinction between workers and employers? The experience of conflict in Sweden over the wage earners funds in the 1970s sheds light on the nature of the class relations. In the 1970s, a proposal in Sweden known as the Meidner Plan was made by the left of the labour movement and the Social Democratic Party, which would enable pension funds to be used by unions to gradually gain ownership of Swedish corporations. Corporations would have been forced by law to give stock to these funds as part of the benefits package for workers. And over time, this would have resulted in a shift of real ownership from the Swedish capitalist class to the unions. All of this was to be done at real market prices, so there was no question of confiscation. The Swedish bourgeoisie massively and vigorously opposed this proposal. The plan represented a fundamental shift from pension funds as a source of forced savings available for investment to those funds being used to transform the governance structure of Swedish industry and thus ultimately the class structure. In the end, the proposal was watered down to the point where it no longer posed any kind of threat. What this episode reflects is the fact that the various forms of indirect ownership of assets represented by such things as pension funds do not in fact constitute a, a significant erosion of the class relations of ownership and control of productive assets. What matters is the way 
power relations are articulated to formal ownership rights. See the Soviet control of production uh, I wrote there. But, you know, this is interesting because, like, the fact that your your pension either comes from the state or it comes from, like, your own private thing is more a question of form than, like, content. If there was no private pensions and everything was state pensions and it was paid from tax revenues, it wouldn't be as easy for the right to make that argument because, you know, the form of how they get their pensions are different. So... It, it's just fucking obfuscation to say that these things, oh, they're, they're just kind of the same. Like, what? Like, yeah, the the, the the Meidner plan is the kind of thing that made me interested in social democracy to begin with. Is that there were, even as late as the 1970s, still attempts to use the corporate structures emerging in the 20th century to the advantage, to change the property form of capitalism in a you know democratic way that is like proletarian in, in some capacity that through a corporate structure the proletariat would eventually like actually own things and run things in some you know distant modern capacity and i've i've tried to see like another way forward for this over the last decade but i think so much of the so-called like neo kalskiist like resurgence i was a part of with you know jacobin and uh like uh, the cult I started, like it's really just denying the science about how corporate <laughs> corporate dynamics work, and and so much of the uh, 20th century socialist stuff is just dead wrong on this some of this basic sociology. And like I'm, I've always wondered, you know, the Swedish Prime Minister, the leader at SP, S, SP, SDP party in Sweden at the time was Olaf Palm, and he was assassinated in the 80s. And right, I wonder yeah. how linked it was to these types of proposals, to be honest. Like, like I, I, I don't know. Like, it, it is really one thing to say, like, people gave it a shot then. And, you know, even if they were kind of, even if there are people at the time writing about how dumb they were, like, you could still, like, see some, like, no one had ever, like, done this for a sustained way in this, like, historically sustained effort. I don't know. It was one thing to yeah. be a part of it and, and have a lot of moral force and people's lives riding on it and try it at the time. And it's another thing to be like, I like this strategy because, you know, unconsciously, there's a nice cushy position in, for it. Uh, I know, it, well, it obviously doesn't work like logically and historically, but I like it. Let's take it for a spin. It's a radical strategy that the capitalist class is very happy for a left party to to have as a strategy you know yeah i don't i don't think anyone should seriously attempt to do the minor plan again i mean you just have to read miner's own article on why the minor plan failed to understand like it's not a good idea but it was worth a shot certainly uh right. you know in a country where social democracy it was as powerful as it was in sweden you know Give it a go. It still couldn't go. It still couldn't happen. What did he say, actually? What what was his article like, Kyle? Oh, basically just talks about how uh, the plan was largely separated from the working class. And it was something that was pushed by the leadership of the unions and uh, the party. And so when the going got tough 
they were really isolated from any social base. And it's like, it, it, it was so abstracted from any kind of labor struggle that it was not something that the workers would strongly defend when the bourgeoisie came after it. That, that, that's more or less the gist of, of what Meidner says. Right. It, it'd be the exact same thing that if Bernie or Corbyn had to manage to win a vote and try to do their policies, you know, they would have got absolutely well, chewed up. I mean, this is like literally, this is like literally the most abstracted and gradualist form of the seizure of the uh, means of production that you could conceive of, right? Like it is, it's like, it's just regularly negotiated purchases on the market under the auspices of state control. It's, it's like as abstract as it could possibly be. And therefore it's not really something that people can feel tangibly and defend tangibly. And I, I think just taking that, like, I think it's more extreme than anything Corbin or Bernie were proposing. Because you look at something like the, what was it, the Green New Deal that, that Bernie was proposing. And like, you know, there's some pretty basic stuff there in, like, in terms of like retraining if you work in a fossil fuel industry and like getting bought out of your job that like people could pretty clearly relate to but this is this is just the highest possible level of abstraction and that's why it's it's really not an effective way to undermine the entire power of the capitalist class because you're just not going to get the workers to invest in it that way like it's like the kind of thing you would read in like I don't know, the the back of the business section in the Financial Times, right? Like it is not it is not something that, that working class struggle is going to mobilize around. Right. They're not going to be out on the street saying, We're fighting for the you know yeah. like, well, I'm, for I'm fighting so that in twenty fifty my grandchildren will buy the last shares of a Swedish joint stock company and we will own in common this syndicate. Workers control. <laughs> when do we want it? In a couple it, generations. Yeah, like, you know, I don't <laughs> no, know. No, it's not even that. It's not it's workers a, control. It's, it's, it's actually tomato. worker ownership. What do we yeah. want? Yeah, worker true. ownership of some of the means of production through well, our of, pensions. Of, of, when of do we corporate... want it? 2047. Well, it's 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 still pretty like I I think it's a pretty radical plan, and it's it's one of the more radical plans in corporate yes socialism. In yes, you think of yes. socialism as a stupid extra stage, like Leninists and social democrats did. The essential Kautskyan social democratic black hole that sucks in all the potentials of the workers' movement in the twentieth century. But you know, like I don't know, I like I get it. I, I get the minor plan, and I think you know. Him understanding why something didn't work has to be worked into our models for social dynamics, and that should go for right to. I I, I absolutely respect what they did as yeah. as an experiment, but to repeat it would be folly. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, Kyle, do you want to take this next slide then? At the core of the Marxist conception of class is the problem of extracting labor effort from producers who do not own the means of production. 
One of the results of this problem is the efficiency wage in which workers are paid more than their reservation wage in order to raise the cost of job loss, thus making them more hesitant to shirk. Another consequence will be the erection of an apparatus of monitoring and enforcement within firms. A third consequence is that employers make technological choices partially in terms of the effects of alternative technologies on monitoring and social control. This does not imply, of course, that the class dimensions of technical choice are always the most important, or even that they are always significant, but simply that employers are not indifferent to the effect of alternative technologies on their capacity to monitor and extract labor effort. There is considerable empirical evidence for each of these effects. Most economists do not use the language of class analysis in discussions of this principal agent problem because they take the distribution of property rights within the capitalist firm for granted. Yet this distribution of property rights is a central dimension of class structure. Making the class character of the problem explicit has the advantage of focusing attention on the ways in which variations in the class relations of production might affect the principal agent problem. What this made me think of is at my job, since I started working there, there has been a change to which, like they could always monitor what we were doing. I answered the phones for, as a scheduler, medical scheduler. So they could mm -hmm. always monitor if we were ready to take calls or not. But now there's a whole, algorithm that plans how much workforce, how much hours are needed at a given time to make sure we have enough people to answer the phones. And so now every single minute is scrutinized to a high degree in a way yeah. that it wasn't before. Like someone would say something if you weren't ready for a while, but like they've gotten so strict on this. So much so that when I got in trouble at my job, I brought up Foucault. Uh, bring up Foucault to your supervisors is super fun. I would highly recommend it. Yeah, that's that's a winning move. Well, you actually brought up the Panopticon. You didn't bring up Foucault. Technically, you were just bringing up this interesting English invention from like a long time ago, and well, like, and kind of spelling out the Panoptic principle be at work. Like I, I brought up the Foucaultian argument. I was making a Foucaultian argument. Yeah. I brought up the Jeremy Bentham yeah, yeah. idea of the Panopticon as the ideal prison, and then I was like. But actually, it kind of fucking sucks because it, <laughs> my job is full of that soft power shit. And like, yeah, I don't have a lot of patience through that kind of passive aggressive thing. So I'm, I could be kind of snotty with them at times. Yeah, yeah. Well, and like, there is the essay by Graeber that I mention all the time on GIU, the flying cars and the, and the, and the declining rate of profit, right? Mm -hmm. Where he points out that. Since the 70s, a great deal of technical investment has been towards surveillance technologies and not towards other things. Um, and it's just it's just kind of like the same argument that Wright is making here, but looking at it as a historical trend as opposed to just like a um, sort of a decision matrix. And And so essentially we get a lot of we get a whole lot of cop shit baked into our technology, and that has been an ever-increasing trend for quite a long time now. 
before I quit this job, I'm going to switch my Google uh, Gmail work Gmail profile picture to a, a picture of the Panopticon and see if anybody notices. <laughs> yes. I read a book uh, by a guy called David Noble. He was like a historian. Like a oh, my God. He, he Okay, Tom, I just have one thing to say about Noble. They were going to hire him at my alma mater, SFU. I'm not sure if it was in my department or in the humanities department, but it was one of them. And the university management lost their shit and and did like a huge like organization effort to bar him from getting the job because they were terrified of him coming into the university. Right, yeah. He, he wrote this book called Forces of Production. A social history of industrial automation. I I read it like it's quite a it's actually quite a dull book. It must be said, but it's talking about like the history mainly of the history of machine tools in America in like yep. post war, and it shows how like the, the state threw loads and loads of investment into making the technology be able to be top down manager driven and not uh, skilled machinists making the decisions. You know, and it was yep. done at all stages. It was done like in the least efficient way, but for purely class reasons. And like yeah. this stuff is everywhere. Like I know myself, I built this system, computer system for a crowd I work with. And like all the class relations I've had to build into the software, you know, don't allow these people to see this because they wouldn't, we, sh we can't let them see that. They, they'd lose their shit if they knew what this other person would make, was making in their job, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's like mm. these type of things are at all levels in all of our, all of our, uh, not everything, obviously, but like so much of our technology is driven through these class choices. You know, and yes. there's also that there's that report. I think it's 20 years old now. I think it's an American one about what percentage of the American workforce are basically involved in surveillance or guarding the assets of the rich. And it works out at 25% of the American workforce. That was in, I think, 99 you know, so yeah, so it's got to be incredible. higher now, right? Yeah, and 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 uh, yeah, and, and I will also mention uh, another GIU thing. My former advisor uh, Andrew Feinberg called this uh, sort of specific implementation ethos of technology the technical code. Um, so the 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 thing that that makes the technology take on the particular political configuration it does. Um, so you wrote a whole bunch about that. If you want to go check that out. So the, the, the thing here about, about the principal agent problem, he's kind of hinting towards some stuff, I think, Esri by Herb and Gintis about like yep. worker cooperatives. Yep. Yeah. yeah uh, well, you know, it's a uh, what management science literature. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, am well, I mistaken? It, it, no, it is. Or, or is that is that just an application from like economics or what is it? Kyle, I have a feeling you. Have... Uh, I think those are the like the you know it's uh, the the Venn diagram is a circle on that one. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I just wanted to say like you were saying like that's a wolf thing, and it's like well, okay, but you know, bulls, gintis, wolf, and right all worked at the same university, so you know. <laughs> it's not a surprise they got a party line here even though they disagree with each other on a number of things
if you'd like to help fund the book that Donald and myself are writing about communist economic planning, please head over to the website theclasslesssocietyinmotion.com where you can donate to our fund to help us get this book out in a finite time. Everybody who donates will get a signed copy of the book when it's released. So head on over there today and help us with this really important project. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia, Mortal Science and Swampside Chats. And if you'd like to help out the show, please remember to head over to Patreon and throw me a few commie dollar. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. Thank you.